Good morning, church. Today's scripture is John 11, verses 45 through 57, and chapter 12, verse 1 through 19. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region where the wilderness, um, to, I'm sorry, the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if one knew where he was, he should let him know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus, therefore, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has come after him. Have you ever thought that you knew somebody when in reality you were completely wrong? Or you later find out you only knew half the story? You think of an experience you've had where that was the case. You thought you knew somebody, but in reality you were completely wrong or you only knew half the story. Sometimes that error is a casualty of our own folly. So for example, say your spouse does something you don't like. Not that that would ever happen. And you respond by, by seizing upon building up a hateful caricature of them in your mind to, to justify your bitterness and your anger. I know what they're like. I know exactly what they're like. They're a terrible person, completely. Well, I understand that feeling, but, but is it actually true? Sometimes it's a casualty of ignorance or mistaken identity. Maybe you think that your friend is reliable, but, but as time goes by, you, you discover to your joy that you, don't, you didn't know half the depth of their loyalty and their faithfulness. Sometimes it's a casualty of misunderstanding. Talk to some of you young people here for a moment. Um, say, say your parents do or say something that, that doesn't jive, doesn't line up with what you think love, if they're actually a loving person, would do to you or say to you. But then, maybe a week later, or a few months later, or for some of us, years later, uh, you look back on their actions and you realize that the problem all along wasn't what they were actually doing or saying. It was your own definition of love. It wasn't true. So folly, ignorance, misunderstanding, whatever the cause, I think most of our identity errors, getting who somebody is wrong, generally fall into one of two categories. Okay, either we're on the wrong track with who somebody is, or we're on the right track, but we don't realize the full extent of the truth. I would argue, friends, we can do so quickly the exact same thing with Jesus. We can be on the wrong track with who he is, or we can even be on the right track, 
but not know half of his goodness or his beauty or his glory. And on the heels of raising Lazarus from the dead, that's what John 11 is all about. John records a careful account of three different responses to Jesus. So Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, and then John immediately records three different responses to him. Everybody in this passage that we just read, there's a lot going on here, but everybody on some level thinks they know who Jesus is. Some of them are completely wrong. Some of them are right. Some are right in one sense and wrong in another sense. Okay? But, but whether they reject Jesus, that's the first group, or worship Jesus, the second group, or initially welcome Jesus, the third group, here's what they all have in common, okay? And why I wanted to preach this entire passage as a unit. Everybody communicates the truth of who Jesus is more than they realize. In other words, out of the mouths of those who know him and those who do not, our God has ordained praise. And in all these examples, all three of them, here's what Jesus does. He just blows out, he he shatters the borders of our finite human understanding of who he is. He's really good at that. He doesn't fit into tidy categories of human wisdom. He doesn't say, I will accommodate myself to your small boxed in understanding of who I am. He makes a different sort of sacrifice than what we might expect. He deserves a different sort of devotion than what we might want to give. And he reigns as a very different sort of king. So let's, let's take a close look at how each of these three groups respond, okay? The religious leaders, group one, his own disciples, group two, and the crowd in general, group three. And as we look at them, here's the goal, to see just how gloriously different Jesus is than who we often make him out to be, okay? First, he makes a different sort of sacrifice. A different sort of sacrifice. Chapter 11, verse 45 through 57. If you look at verse 45, if you have your Bible open, you'll, you'll see that after the resurrection of Lazarus, many of the Jews believed in Jesus. That's a good thing, the way John reports that. That's, that's the whole goal, prompting the religious leaders in Jerusalem to call a council meeting. Why would they call a council meeting? Well, because it's not every day that someone raises a dead man from the grave. (laughs) We need to talk about this. What's going on? What do they say? Verse 47, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Just a little quick background here. Okay, the that council, the Jewish council, enjoyed semi-autonomous rule over Israel as part of the Roman Empire. Um, but that was a very, if you know Jewish history, that was a very fragile piece. And that was punctuated with some regularity by, by uprisings and insurrections led by Jewish zealots fighting for independence. And so the council, no surprise, is worried that, that if Jesus just keeps gathering people around him, what what are the Roman leaders watching over this whole semi-autonomous thing going to think? 
seeds of sedition. Start of an uprising. And Rome would hold them accountable, the council, for tolerating it and start cracking heads. Heads would roll. It's real politic speaking, right? For them, learning the truth about Jesus was irrelevant. Notice that. Political expediency was all that mattered. But here's what I want us to focus on. Notice the massive assumptions and their description of the problem in verse 48. This is critical. If we let him go on like this, the Romans will come. What does that reveal? They, they talk as if they have final power over Jesus, right? And as if Rome has final power over them. You see that? All, all they see, all, all that fills their gaze are the influence and actions of men, friends. There's no awareness, there's no no consideration, there's no attention given to what God is doing in all of it. You know, every, think about this, every one of us is religious in the sense that we assign ultimate significance to something or someone. If you don't believe in Jesus, it means you, you functionally believe in something or someone else. Every, every one of us is religious. And for the religious leaders here, what, what did they believe in? They believed in the power of mortal men. They, they believed in real politic. And inevitably, when, when something or someone other than God fills the horizon of our life and our minds, we like them, what happens? We completely lose touch with spiritual reality because we've lost sight of the center. Our our life, our our world becomes like a a solar system with no sun. It goes crazy. It doesn't hang together. But that doesn't stop our sovereign God brothers and sisters, from accomplishing his will even through our rebellious, forgetful words and deeds. Yes. Doesn't stop him. That doesn't, doesn't hit the brakes. Oh man, another unbelieving human being. No. No. God has not put your hand on the handbrake of divine providence. And one of the high priests, Caiaphas, look at verse 50. He speaks up here and and says something that is absolutely remarkable. Look, it is better for you, notice the selfishness, that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John adds in verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, carried along by the Spirit of God, that Jesus would die for the nation. It's remarkable. What's Caiaphas saying? Again, real politic. What's Caiaphas saying the council should do? Very clear. Kill Jesus to protect your own skin and keep the Romans out. Come on, guys. 
Quit pansing around. It's a worthwhile exchange. What, What does Caiaphas not realize, though? He doesn't realize it's an exceedingly glorious exchange. But not for the reasons he thinks or perceives. Why? Because unbeknownst to him, check this out. Caiaphas has just proclaimed the centerpiece of God's cosmic plan of salvation. Acts 4, verse 27. For truly in this city, there were gathered against, gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, listen, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What what did God ordained? The sovereign God. What did the sovereign God ordained to take place? For his one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place. He ordained that. But it was not for the sake of protecting his people from the Romans. Why did he do that? It It was for the sake of delivering us from the curse of sin and death, friends. Because for for all who deny the infinitely glorious God, the worship he deserves, the just penalty is clear. What does Romans 6.23 say? The wages of sin is death. The guilty, the guilt of our sin, can't go unpunished if God is to remain just. God. And think about it. Even in your own life, is forgiveness ever free? No, no, just say you don't believe so much of this Jesus stuff I'm saying, okay? I'm willing to bet that if you've ever forgiven somebody, you realized that in that moment, you had to what? Absorb the cost of the offense instead of extracting it back in retaliation from that other person. For forgiveness is never free. Same with God. It's always costly. So what does God do? What's Christianity all about? Christianity says God paid the cost for us. Okay, instead of punishing us, what does he do? He takes our punishment on himself. Okay, Jesus dies, so you don't have to die. That, that's the scandal of the gospel, friends. That's, that's the heartbeat of the good news. And the whole point of John recording Caiaphas' words here is to remind us this wasn't plan B. It was God's plan. Substitute for sinners. Plan of redemption all along. Listen to prophet Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 5. He, speaking of the coming Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. At the heart of the gospel, the good news of Christianity is a substitute, an exchange where Jesus takes our sin and our guilt and dies in our place so we don't have to die. But what did Caiaphas and his company think? What did they think? We're going to sacrifice Jesus for the sake of political expediency. 
That's what they thought, right? But in the sovereignty of God, what was actually happening? A very different sort of sacrifice. A sacrifice for the elect assembly of the children of God. And a sacrifice for a, a common need. Salvation from sin. Forging a, a shared union. Membership in the body of Christ. The sacrifice, look at verse 52, that makes the many one. A sacrifice, in other words, that gives, gives birth to this. To the church. So were the religious leaders' actions, think about this, fueled by selfish resentment of Jesus' popular appeal? Yes, absolutely. Does does a continued lust for power corrupt our world, your world, my world, everything around us, in countless ways today? Yes or no? Yes. But was a human lust for power Ultimately calling the shots. No. No. The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus, along along with Caiaphas' unwitting prophecy of the same, proves, what's it prove? That, That even the most wicked actions of men remain firmly under the sovereign control of the living God. It's that's a precious gift, friends. Notice, rejecting Jesus left Caiaphas and his friends perceiving a godless world where human oppression was the biggest problem, a la the Romans, and reasserting human power was the necessary solution, a la killing Jesus. What's the problem? Human power. What's the solution? Human power. how quickly we follow their example. You know? We, we, we speak or act as if what? As, as if our boss is in control. Or our critical spouse, or our kids, or the other political party, or, or people who disdain us on account of the color of our skin, or, or people who think there's no way anyone could dislike you on account of the color of your skin. The point of this passage is that human oppression is real, but human oppressors are never in control. Okay? Our God is in control. Your, your, your relationship to him, not them, is the biggest issue on the table. Their power is real, but his power is supreme. Okay? And his sovereign rule, listen, reminds us that the salvation we need isn't ultimately a work of men or a more equitable distribution of human power and influence as beneficial as those things may be. The salvation we need is a work of God, period. That the hope and help we need doesn't come from countering the corrupted power of men with more corrupted power of men. It comes from God comes from the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus who reconciles us to God and in so doing, reconciles us to one another. Human power is a tremendous problem in this world, but it will not be fixed by more human power. When men do their worst, the good purposes of God remain. 
Jesus' sacrifice through unwitting Caiaphas <laughs> screams that again and again and again. That's the first thing we need to see. He makes a different sort of sacrifice. Here's point two. He deserves a different sort of devotion. A different sort of devotion. If you look at the beginning of chapter 12, John makes a reference here to the, the impending festival of the Passover. What's that? Well, that's a, a very careful way of directing our attention back to the very beginning of John's gospel. Where John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, what? Behold the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. It, it also marks the timing of a dinner party. And this is quite the dinner party because Jesus attends it in Bethany with presumably more than this, but at least Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And I just said, can you imagine? What did they talk about with Lazarus? <laughs> you know? Hey, buddy, tell me one more time. What was it like to wake up and realize you weren't dead anymore? <laughs> like, you just... Tell me again. You know? I can't imagine the conversation. So you've got pro- presumably that going on, you know, every, every time somebody else comes and walk, oh, hey, Lazarus, hey, uh, by the way, you know, you got Martha serving, as always, and, and suddenly Mary comes up, look at verse three, and anoints Jesus with an expensive ointment made from pure nard. She, she even pours it on his feet wipes his feet with her hair. It, it was an, an incredible expression of gratitude and devotion. That doubtless strengthened by what? The, the care, the love that she'd experienced from Jesus because he had just raised her dead brother from the grave, right? But immediately, one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, he, he objects to this. On the professed grounds of pragmatic charity. Look at verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Well, Jesus' reply in verse 7 responds to that with a, with a resounding affirmation for Mary. What's he say? Leave her alone. Bug off. <laughs> Stop it. She intended to keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What's Jesus saying? That her action wasn't just permissible. It was beautifully appropriate. So think about this, okay? Let's, Let's think about her devotion here to the Savior who deserves a different sort of devotion. First, her devotion was costly. Very costly. Christian, if, if you tell someone that you enjoy going to church or that you, you, know, you say, I, I've just found a lot of spiritual inspiration in the Bible. Few people are going to raise an eyebrow. Okay, or bat an eye. Many people will nod approvingly. I mean, it's, it's good to be well-rounded, holistic self-care, Spiritual things. I'm into yoga. You know, it just... Good for you. 
But if you say, I'm waiting to have sex until I'm married. We're, we're living in a smaller home so we can give more money to our church. Or I'm quitting my six-figure marketing job to move overseas and learn a new language and share Jesus with people who have been steeped in Buddhism. You're what? If you haven't experienced this already, they will think you are out of your mind. Why? Because it feels excessive, right? It feels unbalanced, unhinged. It seems out of touch with the real, real politic world where economic value is king. And and thievery aside, it's not hard to hear all kinds of secular voices in Judas' objection, you know? Let's be reasonable, Mary. Isn't this a bit much? Isn't this a classic case of you being so heavily minded, you're no earthly good? I mean, this, this gift of yours could have been used to address more, more pressing concerns, Mary. You know, the, the things that, that really matter in the, well, the real world, Mary. I'm not, I'm not saying, I mean, you know, to each his own, that you shouldn't be religious. But, Mary, don't be that radical, You heard that? You thought that? Friend, no expression of devotion to Jesus is too costly in light of the surpassing joy of knowing and serving your God. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Luke 14, 33 So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Say what, Jesus? What he's saying is that there is no such thing as measured or balanced devotion to Jesus. That's not a thing. That doesn't exist. It's not real. As if we could worship him by making him one concern, one interest, one lifestyle element among all the things we enjoy pursuing. Okay, half-hearted devotion is not devotion, friend. Either he is your greatest treasure, your highest joy, your supreme ambition, or he is not. there's There's no middle ground. There's no Jesus plus subscription option. Either we're, 
we're all in or we're not in. That's sobering. Revelation 3, verse 15. What's Jesus say? I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Do you know 11 and a half ounces of pure nard cost basically an entire year's worth of wages in Mary's day? What's the median salary in Chesterfield County? I don't know. 80-ish thousand, 85 maybe now. If Mary had asked you beforehand, let's get personal. Mary comes and and says, "Do, do you think I should break this jar and give this to Jesus? What do you think you would have said? Be honest. How would you have counseled her? Would you have admonished her to, well, Mary, I so respect your desire. But, but can, let's, let's think about this, Mary, you know. How, how's the kid's college fund? You paid off all your credit cards? I mean, inflation's rising. I mean, how, how about we find ways to, Love Jesus, but, but, but not be too excessive. Friend, the whole point is that Jesus is worthy of the most lavish expressions of our devotion. Okay, he deserves nothing less than your highest affections and your deepest loyalty, okay? Not part of your time, all of your time. Not part of your money, all of your money. Okay, no, no. Think about this. There's no gift you can give him that will ever repay the gift that he's given you and himself. So heed Mary's example and and ask the Lord, be honest this morning. Father, is there anything in my life that I am holding back and not surrendering to you? Trying to, here's this and this and this and this. What's in your pocket? Oh, there's nothing over here. Lord, Lord, teach us to love you with our whole heart. That's, that's what we need to pray, friends. Give, give me an undivided heart to fear your name. True devotion is costly. Second, true devotion, her devotion, is humble. It's humble. Think about this. Mary, Mary was obviously a wealthy woman. Like crazy wealthy, okay? But notice, she didn't pay other people to serve Jesus in her place, right? It wasn't below her. She didn't, she didn't send him thoughts and prayers and then drive her car back into the comfort of her suburban garage. She didn't do that. She, she took what? A cultural crown of her glory and honor and beauty as a woman, her hair, and she used it to lavish her gratitude and affection on the Lord. That, that, was, that was deeply personal, friends. That, that was embodied. That was a bodily expression of 
abundant love for the Savior. It wasn't sexually inappropriate. Don't go there. It wasn't, but it wasn't something that, that a dignified woman looking to maintain the approval of others would have done either. So, so to switch settings, it was akin to passionately singing on Sunday morning or, or raising your hands in worship or, or kneeling down or, or other expressions of physical devotion to Jesus that, that you never would go there or entertain because, you know, somebody else might think, gosh, that's too radical. In affirming her devotion, friend, Jesus is reminding us that he doesn't want something from us. We're from you. He wants all of you. He wants all of your heart, all of your affections, all your desires. If, if, you, if you possess things the world values, if, if you have money or power or maybe pronounced talents or physical abilities, and instead of using them, devoting them to seeking your own honor, you use and devote all those things to making much of Jesus and loving Jesus and loving him by loving other people with those things, the world is going to look at that and think and say things like, what a waste. What a waste. Oh, you, you're going to be a pastor, are you? That's nice. When that happens, friends, remember that the great marvel is not what you are willing to give up for Jesus' sake. The great marvel is that you have been given the unspeakable privilege of doing anything for his sake. We don't deserve the dignity of serving him. We, we don't deserve the joy of knowing him or, or loving him. Mary was acutely aware of that fact. I mean, why, why does John go out of his way to say that she anointed the feet of Jesus? And in case she missed it, to wipe his feet with her hair. What's, what's, you got a foot thing, John? No. Feet were what the lowliest servants washed. And so her actions, as D.A. Carson observes, reveal her self-perceived unworthiness. She didn't approach Jesus as, as an equal. She, she didn't strut up to him and say, you know, I really appreciate you choosing me from, you know, whatever that eternity past thing is, because I've got something to offer you. No. No. She laid hold of his feet. Her devotion was personal and humbly so. Finally, her devotion was prophetic. Think about this. This different sort of devotion Jesus deserves. It was a prophetic devotion. When, when people died in Jesus' day, if you're not familiar with this, here's what happened, okay? Their bodies were, were anointed with perfume and spices. And that was both an expression of honor and very practical because they didn't have refrigerated morgues. And I'll let you fill in the details. It's how you prepared a corpse for burial. And, and whether Mary knew it or not, Jesus knew that he was about to die, right? That his, his earthly ministry was drawing to a close. And her expression of love here, it, this is what Jesus is saying. It points forward. Mary, even if you don't realize this, it points forward to the greatest expression of love the world has ever known. What's that? 
God laying down his life for us. Her, her act of worship, it spoke the truth about Jesus, including truths she undoubtedly had yet to fully grasp. And here's the point, friends. Our expressions of devotional worship to Jesus today, they do the exact same thing. Exact same thing. They, they're equally prophetic in the sense, hear me, that they proclaim the truth of his worth and value. Let's take that out of the abstract and make it concrete, okay? Examples, here we go. Your refusal to retaliate in an argument proclaims God's impeccable justice. My trust is in the Lord. He's going to vindicate me. I don't have to kill you. Your loyalty to your spouse. When that good-looking person at the office starts flirting with you, proclaims what? The covenant faithfulness of Christ to his people. It's prophetic. How about your, how about your verbal initiative? When the service is done and a big party just says, I'm just going to kind of head right to my car and go home and, you know, on to the next thing. But instead of doing that, what if you, what if you take verbal initiative and, and you go and introduce yourself to somebody in this room, you have no idea who they are. And you do something courageous, especially if you're an introvert, like I tend to be. Some of you can't believe that, but I am. And you ask a question like, hey, what brought you to Kingsway? Or is there any way I can pray for you? Or, you know, and then they say something and you mumble a prayer and think, gosh, this is exactly why I hate doing this. Do <laughs> you realize that moment was prophetic? Because as dumb as you felt and, and maybe as dumb as you sounded, <laughs> you communicated, you proclaimed that we serve a shepherd who sees and knows and for whom not one person in this room is invisible. Genuine faith worships Jesus in ways that are costly, personal, and prophetic. And and hear me, okay? It doesn't mean ignoring the practical needs of people around you. Okay, the poor included. It's a whole other sermon, but but loving God (laughs) requires what? Loving our neighbor. But, but there's a clear order of priority. That's what Jesus is establishing. He is our first love, our greatest treasure. Other people's needs, some of us need to remember this, are not our master. Jesus is our master. And remember, the best gift you can ever give somebody, whether they're rich or poor, is the testimony of a soul that is supremely satisfied in Jesus best gift because he deserves a categorically different sort of devotion that supersedes our devotion to everything else, including things that are good, but they're not him. Finally, when with this, he reigns as a different sort of king, a different sort of sacrifice, a different sort of devotion, and a different sort of king. Chapter 12, verse 12. When Jesus approaches Jerusalem here, John tells us that a a large crowd comes out of the city and gives him nothing short of a royal welcome. And and you need to know that everything they do here is just dripping with kingly symbolism. 
So they weren't waving palm branches because, you know, one person did it and it became a thing. Palm, palm leaves were a nationalistic symbol. They were on the coins that they minted when they rebelled against the Romans. It was a way of saying, here's to Jewish nationalism. Onward and upward from Roman slavery. And the words they cry in verse 13 from Psalm 118, what do they say? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In their original context in Psalm 118, that refers to the Davidic king, to the Lord's anointed who would, who would reign on Yahweh's behalf. That's loaded with kingly symbolism. And, and then even their acclamation, their, their cry, Hosanna, literally what is that? Save us now or save us God. And then in, in case there's any uncertainty about who they think Jesus is, look at the end of verse 13. Blessed is he who comes, even the king of Israel. As far as they're concerned, the, the long-awaited Messiah, who they were convinced would solve all their problems, starting with deliverance from Rome, had finally arrived. I mean, it's like, a- after all, come on, guys, if, if he could raise a man from the grave, I mean, is anything too hard for this guy? This is our moment, right? This is our opportunity. This is the king we've been waiting for all along is finally here. Or is he? Because at this point, Jesus does something that, that his disciples in the crowd certainly didn't understand, John tells us, till after his death and resurrection when they they began to really understand the true nature of his saving work, of what it meant to be a Messiah. He he finds, what, a young donkey, verse 14, and he rides into Jerusalem on it, fulfilling a specific detail, amazing, from a prophecy that a man named Zechariah prophesied about the Messiah 500 years earlier. Listen, Zechariah 9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the full of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. We read that earlier this morning. And the the crowd's reaction here reminds us they got one thing right, okay? What's that? What did they get right? A king was coming into Jerusalem. They got that right, but they got everything else completely wrong. The kind of king, the kind of Messiah. And frankly, it's why most of them, just a few verses later at the end of chapter 12, abandoned Jesus in widespread unbelief. And why the great lot of them, when you get to the beginning of John 19, what do they shout? Crucify him. But but weren't you waving the... They clearly wanted a king. Just not this sort of king. <laughs> can I get it? Can I order it? No, I don't want pickles. I, 
can I get a different king? <laughs> what kind of king is this? What, what kind of king says at the end of chapter 12, he's going to die and then immediately says, if I'm going to follow him, I have to die too. Um, yet no. What kind of king is this? Well, it's a very different sort of king. And it's also exactly the sort of king Zechariah said God would send. What kind of king? A humble king who walks in obedience to Yahweh, succeeding where the, the greatest Israelite kings of old inevitably failed. A gentle king who rides, rides a donkey, not a, not a war horse, <laughs> who, who brings peace, not just to, to Israel, but to every nation in the world. And listen, a king who demonstrates his triumphant power, not by instigating an insurrection, but by delivering his people from the prison of guilt and condemnation, through a covenant-keeping death on a bloody cross. That kind of king. He was the Messiah, friends. Just not the sort they wanted or expected. And how easily, can we be honest? How easily we adopt the exact same attitude. You know? Like, like the crowd, we, we welcome Jesus. Initially, we, we think he can solve our problems can fix my spouse. He can correct our troubles. He can patch us up. He can, he can deck our enemies. He can give us the good life that we as Americans, <clears throat> followers of Jesus, know we deserve. But then suffering comes and the welcome flees the coop. And we join the crowd down with you, God. I would make a better one. King Jesus did not come to make your life easy, my friend. But he did come to give you the eternal joy of peace with God. One day, he's going to make everything wrong in your physical world right. But not yet. Because in this day, right now, He is working to what? To thrill your soul. To thrill your soul by drawing you to himself and making you more like him. That's what King Jesus is doing. He's a different sort of king who makes a different sort of sacrifice and deserves a very different sort of devotion. That's the point of this entire passage. And it leaves us it really leaves us with, with both a warning and an encouragement, okay? Hear this. What's the warning? Just because you think you know Jesus doesn't mean you actually have his identity right or that you actually believe in him for that matter, right? The religious leaders reject him and in the process they say more than they realize about the truth of his sacrifice, The crowd welcomes him, and in the process, they say more than they realize about the majesty of his reign. What's the point? It's altogether possible to say things that are true about Jesus without actually comprehending or embracing or responding to their true significance. That's a warning. Not, oh, look at those funny people. It's a warning. You can hear truth about Jesus from this pulpit on Sunday mornings just like this and have absolutely no genuine faith in him in your heart. That's a warning. But there's also an encouragement here. 
And it comes through Mary's example. It's the divinely intended effect of these words because, because what's she model? What, she, what path does she show us? She models through her costly, personal, truth-speaking devotion the, the essence of genuine faith in Jesus. That's what it looks like. As Edward Klink says, Christian discipleship involves humble service to the king, valuing all things and activities by their ability to express honor to Christ. Make that your response to Jesus, friend. That's the point. Love him with all your heart, with all your mind, all your strength. You, you can't ever repay to him the gift that he has given you and himself. But what can you do? You can declare to the world around you through the way you love him and serve him just how good and gracious he is. Let's ask for his help to do that. Jesus, we confess as your people that you are indeed a different sort of sacrifice and king who deserves a different sort of devotion, not a balanced, measured, calculated, half-hearted something, but all of us, Lord, absolutely all of us. And we pray as we sing this song, Father, and prepare our hearts those of us who are your followers, to share the Lord's Supper shortly, that you would please consecrate us, cleanse us from every sin that so easily entangles, and renew a single-minded, costly, humble, personal, truth-speaking devotion to Jesus. Oh, Lord, guard us from thinking that because we say things that are true about you or think things that are true about you, that we are actually believing in you in our heart. Help us to love you first and best. And thanks for your spirit that makes even that a marvelous work of grace and not an exercise in human achievement. We love you. Amen. Stand if you're able and let's sing.